Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by our two hosts, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, great to see you as always. Great to see you too, Joe. And Rich Lenkov of Bryce Downey and Lenkov. How's it going, Rich? Actually, new name. Uh, <laughs> even even less uh, words for you to say, Joe. Now it's only Downey and Lenkov. So as of uh, as of recent times. Well, is, is that because you've now changed my contract where you pay me per word? So exactly, <laughs> exactly. Already, you lost one third of your pay. <laughs> Well, we are thrilled to welcome in our first guest, Judge Thomas B. Griffith, former federal judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Judge, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Judge, honor to have you. Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, is still facing the Senate advise and consent role. They are currently vetting her. Uh, you were very involved with Judge Jackson's introduction. You, in fact, introduced her to the Senate. Can you explain your relationship with Judge Jackson, how you came to be in this very momentous moment in history? Sure. Happy to. So, yeah, I want to stress that I'm a former judge, as you said, a, a sitting judge couldn't do uh, such a thing. But I'm a former judge. I, I've, I've known Judge Jackson for a decade now. Uh, I first knew her when she was a district court judge in the same courthouse where I was an appeals court judge. So we just, we saw each other, bumped each other in the hallways, right? We did a couple of uh, events together, moot courts at various law schools. Uh, and then I had a couple of occasions as an appeals court judge to review her work. Uh, you know, somebody lost in front of her, they appealed the decision uh, to, to me. And so I and my colleagues would review her work um, and so I, so I got a, I got a good sense of who she is as a, as a person and, and as a judge. And, and, uh, I, I retired from the DC circuit in uh, September, uh, 2020. And a couple months after that, she was nominated by, uh, president Biden to join the court that I had just left. And she reached out to me, uh, uh, and asked if I would be willing to write a letter of support. In, in her behalf uh, to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which I was happy to do, uh, and and that went well. It was well was well received. So um, uh, eight months later, when President Biden uh, nominates Judge Jackson for the Supreme Court, uh, she asked if I would write a letter again, and I did. Then it went well, uh, and then much to my surprise and honor and pleasure, about ten days before the committee hearing, she called me and asked if I would be willing to introduce her to the committee. And uh, I was uh, flattered and honored and uh, was more than willing uh, to do that. So uh, that's how that's how I ended up uh, with my five minutes uh, introducing her to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, Judge. now look, I, I, get, I get why, right? I mean, um, I, I, I was appointed by George W. Bush. Uh, uh, I'm a judicial conservative. I'm an originalist and a textualist, right? Um, and so uh, uh, presumably uh, it was newsworthy and notable that 
someone with my background and uh, inclinations and sensibilities would be an enthusiastic supporter of Judge Jackson. But as I tried to point out in my uh, introduction to her, there was a day when that would not have been remarkable at all. Um, and uh, that it is remarkable today, I think, as a sign, obviously things have changed. I, I, I don't think they've changed uh, for, for the better. So that was uh, uh, part of the reason I was excited to uh, introduce her, was to be able to make to make that point in support of such an extraordinary uh, 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 nominee for the Supreme Court. And I, I point out that I'm not the only uh, judge who was appointed by a Republican president who has said great things about her. Judge, judge uh, Mike Ludig, a longtime uh, conservative hero on the Fourth Circuit, one of the finest judges in, in our nation's history. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. And as, conserv uh, as much as judicial conservatives you could possibly find, uh, wrote in her defense and said that she, he didn't know of a more qualified candidate for the Supreme Court at, 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 at any time. And uh, other other uh, judges, Judge David Levy, uh, Judge Andy Guilford, and, and uh, others have, have uh, uh, supported uh, this extraordinary nomination. So, Judge, on that point, um, can you explain why you think the framers would lament on how the confirmation process has become so partisan over the years. Yeah, well, what, one thing, we have a pretty good idea of how they viewed it because it happened so quickly in their day, right? I mean, someone would be nominated and and confirmed the same day. Now, uh, history is always tricky. There weren't political parties uh, in, in the summer of 1787 when they put together the, the Constitution. They formed uh, pretty quickly thereafter. Uh, but I, I, I think they would uh, lament uh, the recent uh, a, a turn of events because um, it, it, it misunderstands the, the hyper-partisanship that surrounds uh, judicial nominations today, I think fundamentally misunderstands the role of the judiciary uh, under the Constitution. Look, when the framers created this, uh, this system of government, they were doing something different. And, and it was based on a very fundamental idea. The fundamental idea was in our system, we're going to have elected representatives make the laws. It's not going to be a church. It's not going to be a king. It's not going to be an aristocracy. It's not going to be 12 wise people. Um, it's going to be we the people through elections that decide what laws are made. And, and in that system, it's not judges who decide what the law is. Judges, judges, according to the framers, have a very limited role uh, under the Constitution. And that is to take the laws that are passed by Congress and signed by the president and apply those laws to disputes before them. Their job, our job, is not to figure out what's the fair and just and equitable result. But the American people decide that through the laws that they pass. Judges' jobs are to simply apply that law. In, in one sense, it's a very uh, clerk-like job, right? Uh, you're finding out what the law is. You look it up and you, you apply it to the dispute before you. Now, now, the nature of the laws, the nature of the disputes make it, make it uh, a little more complicated than that. But fundamentally, that's what, that's what a judge is supposed to be uh, doing. So when, when we turn it into um, a, a partisan affair, uh, saying that 
you know, judges appointed by Republican presidents uh, are, are, are going to end up, you know, uh, find, supporting policies that that conservatives like and vice versa. You know, judges appointed by liberal presidents are going to be there on the Supreme Court to to support policies by uh, a liberal president. That just misunderstands the role of the court. And in my observation, that's actually that's not how judges work. It, it, in my 15 years on the D.C. Circuit, I never once not once saw a decision by any of my colleagues that I thought was motivated by his or her desire to further a partisan aim. Uh, obviously, I've never been on the Supreme Court, uh, but Justice Breyer, whose seat uh, Judge Jackson looks going to be filling, uh, Justice Breyer says the same thing about his time on the Supreme Court. Now, that's that sort of claim is met with skepticism. I, I can tell you, I've been in the room where it happens on the D.C. Circuit, and, and it isn't partisan. Justice Breyer has been in the room where it happens on the Supreme Court, and he says it's not it's it's not partisan. So if you're going to disagree with Stephen Breyer, you know, bring, bring, bring your arguments with you. This is a really smart man, and he's been in the room. Uh, politicians, pundits uh, discount those views. I, I, I'm here to say I, I think that cynicism is wrong. Uh, and to the extent that we make the confirmation process look like a partisan display, we're undermining uh, competence the American people should have in an impartial judiciary that is not deciding cases by which party uh, 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 it advances and which party it, uh, it hurts. It's just not done that way. Judge, I know you uh, were very complimentary in praising Judge Jackson's commitment to the rule of law, how important that was. Um, I know you've also, in that context, talked talked about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and we're seeing in the last 24 hours some horrific scenes of atrocities in Bucha, for example, where the rule of law has just obviously gone by the wayside. How damaging is what's going on in that part of the world to the rule of law everywhere, not just in, in, in Ukraine. Right. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's unimaginable. I mean, I never thought that uh, we read about these sorts of atrocities in history books. Right. And we think, Oh, we've moved beyond that. And to see that uh, actually not all of us have moved beyond that is, uh, uh, it, it, it's tragic, tragic. And it's, uh, it's, it's unimaginable. What, what it reminds me is that this idea of the, the rule of law, the idea that it's not, it, 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 we, we create laws by which societies are governed, and then we submit ourselves to them, even when we lose, even when we lose an election, right? We, we, we submit to the rule of, of, of law. I think what we're seeing, uh, one of the things we're seeing with Russia's brutal uh, uh, and barbaric uh, invasion of Ukraine is how fragile the rule of law is in, in, in the best of times. It's a fragile possibility and we don't live in the best of times. Uh, and so therefore, um, I, I think I, I think things like judicial nomination. I think we need to be really careful when we turn a judicial nomination into a partisan partisan battle because it, it, it damages uh, the public's confidence. Uh, in the courts being impartial and in the port courts being ruled by the rule of law and not just by the 
a judge's own personal preferences. It's such an interesting point. And we'll have to, because we're out of time, we'll have to have you back on to discuss your opinion on the corollary between, you know, not adhering to the results of an election and what's going on in Ukraine. Because I think it's an excellent point that it's all part of, you know, the, the, the erosion of the rule of law. And given how high profile that election results fight in our country was, how it could affect people way across the world. That being said, We'll have to have you back on for that. We'll end off with uh, maybe a more positive story. You know, uh, this week in our state, actually on Friday in our state, lots of uh, bar takers found out whether they passed or not. Uh, in your vast experience, seeing people appear before your honor, give us one piece of advice. And, you know, obviously be prepared. But from a judge's perspective, what's the one piece of advice that some of our young listeners or even veterans like me should adhere to when they appear before uh, a judge? Oh, uh, that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, I've got more than one piece. But I'll, just, <laughs> I'll just I'll just uh, I'll, I'll just choose one. Um, recognize that this system that we have, this adversarial system that we have, that 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 resorts to courts to 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 to, to resolve disputes instead of fisticuffs and and, and arms. R- realize that this is uh, a system that has been developed over hundreds of years, and it embodies critically important values about who we are as a people, who we are as, as a nation. So my, my advice is respect that system, abide by it. Its rules are important. Its norms are, 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 are critical. The system is so much bigger than, than the individual player. And, 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 and this is a time, I believe, where we are all called, and especially members of the bar are called, to, to, to support the institutions that have, that, that have gotten us to where we are in our country. Do we have a long way more to go? Oh, yes. Yeah, this is unfinished business. Uh, we, we've got a long way to go to, to represent the ideal, to, to achieve the ideals of liberty and equality. But we have a system that has done pretty well in moving us along the path. So respect the system, respect the institutions. And, and, and my, my hope and my confidence is that if we do, if we respect the system, we respect the institutions, it, 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 will, it will further us along the path towards liberty and equality that hopefully we're, we're all dedicated to. Again, that's former federal judge Thomas Griffith. Judge, thank you so much for the insight and the time today. Thank you. face-off with a special guest talking about the trial that began yesterday. Actually, the jury selection start yesterday in the Parkland shooting case. We're very privileged to have Mark Iglarsh on today. Mark is a criminal defense lawyer in Hollywood and Fort Lauderdale. Mark, welcome to Legal Face-Off. Thanks for having me. So you were actually in the courtroom yesterday as the jury selection process started. We know that this is one of the larger pools of potential jurors in Florida criminal history. Tell us what you saw in the courtroom yesterday. It was bizarre. Uh, you, you have a pre-selection. And by that, I mean, they're not even asking the typical questions like, could you impose the ultimate sanction of death? How do you feel about prosecutors and law enforcement? 
That's not even happening for another month. This is what they call pre-selection. Questions like, could you sit for four to six months on this case? And, you, you know, most people, I'd say at least 75% said, uh, my employer won't pay me, thus I won't eat, or I have a child with special needs, or I have children who need to be picked up from school. Those people went bye-bye. The remaining probably 25% will come back in May for a second round of questioning. Why is it going to take so long? Why are we looking at such a long ordeal process and also such a long trial in seemingly a relatively straightforward issue where the defendant, one of the most famous, unfortunately, defendants ever, has already pled guilty. Because you have to have sufficient time for the prosecutor to present their aggravators, the reasons why he should die. And then the defense will present their mitigators, the reasons why he shouldn't be put to death. And that takes time. You've got experts on both sides. You've got a walkthrough of the crime scene, which I actually went through. I, I through a related case, I walked through that 1200 building just a couple of weeks ago. My goodness, that is beyond words to see blood on the ground, to see as if it happened yesterday, like they just literally preserved it exactly as it occurred. Glass on the ground, uh, casings, you know, remnants of casings and, and bullet holes through, through windows. It is eerie. Yeah, the judge uh, ruled, I believe, yesterday that the jury can, over the defense objection, can go visit the crime scene. Why do you think she ruled that way over the objection that this would only serve to inflame the jury? Because one of the aggravators that the prosecutor is presenting to the jury is that this was cold, calculated, premeditated. They want to show that it was also heinous, atrocious and cruel. Whatever they can do to inflame the jurors, they want to do that. And they say that the only way to do it is by showing what he did step by step by step and putting themselves in his shoes. And so you got to bring him there. That's their argument. And the judge believed in it. So the obvious two questions are, um, number one, how do you find a jury? And the misconception, of course, is that you have to find a jury who's never heard of this case. Now, that's impossible. I don't think a jury anywhere on this planet has not heard this about this shooting. But the question really is, of course, how do you find a juror that has put aside any preconceived notions of guilt or innocent, innocence and decides this case based solely on the evidence presented? How challenging okay. is that going to be? Well, uh, challenging, but you'll find them. You only need 12, right? Just 12 people. And if she's bringing in a thousand and then netting maybe, you know, 10% of that or 20%, then from that group, you know, she can, she can find 12 people. You got retirees, you got people who, who, you know, want to be on this jury. And the, the good news is they don't have to decide whether he's guilty or not. He's already said he's guilty. They just have to decide whether it's life in prison without parole or death. And you can do it. It just takes time. Yeah. You know, I was on uh, an, a radio program this morning, early this morning, talking about how likely it is that a jury would impose the death penalty. And in this you know, situation, it's interesting because one of the goals, of course, of punishment, like the death penalty, is to act as a deterrent to future criminals. Right. But by most accounts, the majority of school shooters kill themselves. So you wonder how much of a deterrent effect a death penalty would have on the general public, people thinking about doing this again. It's an interesting question. I'm not sure we could decide. But as a veteran criminal defense lawyer who has represented many high profile defendants, Mark, what are you looking for as a defense attorney in this case 
you're obviously just looking for one juror, right? You don't need 12, you need one. So what kind of characteristics are you looking for when you're picking this jury? First of all, I'm shooting for all 12. I want all 12 to feel for my client and I'll settle for one. Right. Because the law changed several years ago. It's now the verdict has to be unanimous. All 12 must say he should die. I'm looking for people who will be sympathetic to my client, at least as it relates to his upbringing, his mental health issues, the fact that he has a lack of priors, that he was bullied. I'm looking for someone who is going to say, okay, I'm not justifying what he did, but I will let him live and be arguably productive in prison. But I got to tell you, you know, one thing that really troubles me in this case up until the time that he, not allegedly, because he pled to it, committed an assault on a guard in the jail. The argument that was available to the defense was, and a very compelling argument, just let him live out his time in prison and be productive. He's not going to hurt anybody. He did this horrible thing. It's an isolated incident in his life. But now that he's pled guilty to assaulting a guard, and there's video of him attacking a guard or whatever happened in that case, well, now it's like, no, he's a menace in jail, too. He's going to commit crimes there, too. And that, to me, is, I think, the, the most compelling argument for the prosecutors, along with the fact that this crime is so obviously cold, calculated and premeditated. What are you absolutely looking? Who are you absolutely looking to keep off if you are his lawyer? What kind of people, you know, what what characteristics about them? Because we all know that Wardeer is not a perfect process. I mean, you're basically you know, using a few minutes, maybe a few hours to determine how people are going to react. Mm-hmm. And obviously, just because someone appears to be conservative or liberal or works as a police officer or as a social worker doesn't mean that you can predict how they are going to rule. So who really knows? But as a veteran defense attorney, what kind of professions, what kind of people are you looking for that might not be sympathetic to your client? It's an excellent question. And the reason why I'm struggling with it should yield the answer to my question. I wouldn't systematically exclude any person at all, mm-hmm. even law enforcement. I, I wouldn't. I have to ask certain questions that will yield where their head's at. And it's based upon that, those responses that would cause me to get rid of them. But across the board, as I sit here right now, I don't represent him, so I haven't really given it much thought. I do have a a death penalty case here in Fort Lauderdale, and I've given that a lot of thought. Um, But but here um, I haven't. And my thought is in general is it just depends upon what they say to the to to my to the questions and not necessarily what they do for a living across the board. You know, that kind of right. Well, you are not representing this defendant. You are representing a client who is involved in this case in another way. Could you please uh, tell us a little bit more about that? And and what's what's the latest on that case? Yeah, I'm representing Scott Peterson, Scott with one T. You know, I've had people attack me on social media, say, how dare you represent that guy who killed his his pregnant wife? And I'm like, no, no, no. It's the other Scott Peterson. It's the uh, school resource officer who was um, who was there on the day in question, who's been called the coward of Broward um, for allegedly cowering in the corner, knowing that kids were being killed and he did nothing. Those were the allegations. That was what Scott Israel, his boss, said to the media, essentially, that he should have gone in to kill the killer. And then our president at the time, Trump, then parroted that. He doesn't care about kids. So that's all we were fed. I didn't even want to take the meeting with him when he said, hey, Mark, I want you to represent me. But reluctantly, I did. And boy, I'm glad that I did. 
through that meeting and through me studying the evidence, I'm saying, not just because I'm his lawyer and I'm paid to say this, I'm telling you, Mark Eiglarch, the human being, loses sleep at night and is on edge constantly because he's innocent. He's facing a potential life sentence for numerous counts of child neglect and other charges. And by the way, no law enforcement officer has ever been charged in the history of our system with child neglect. It says right in the statute that law enforcement officers are excluded. But more significantly, during that time period, he wasn't cowering in the corner. He ordered the code red. He's telling kids to get back in the classroom. He's telling officers, watch their back because he believes that he's under sniper fire. This building 73 yards long, the first shooting happened outside all the way down. He doesn't know where the gunfire is coming from. And in real time, you can hear him saying on the train, there's a transcript. You hear him saying, Perry, referring to his fellow officer, where's the shooter? Does he know where the shooter is? He's sending the assistant principal into the office to look at video to find out where the shooter's located. So how should he go into the 1200 building to kill the killer when he doesn't even know, number one, precisely where he is, and number two, that kids are being killed? It is a bogus charge, and it was there because his boss wanted to save his job. You know, it's really interesting, that perspective, and, and we all know, I mean, first of all, let's all stipulate that the person responsible for this crime is the shooter, unquestionably. But we know that there was some we'll call it negligence for lack of a better term of many people before this shooting took place. There was plenty of warnings. The FBI was on notice on several occasions and, and this shooter posted videos beforehand. So that's got to come into play, right? I mean, if, if, if there's other people besides the shooter responsible, all of those other factors have to come into play before he even entered the school that day. There's all that. And then we'll add to the fact that, the phones, the um, the walkie-talkies, whatever you call it, the, the the phone system that the cops use. I don't know why it's failing me. Yeah. Um, the um, whatever they call those things, they communicate on the walkie-talkies. Walkie-talkies, right? Right. Okay. They were completely failed on the day that they needed them the most, and worse. Carl Springs Police Department. They were getting all the nine one one calls about there being a shooter in the twelve hundred building, killing kids. They never then relayed that information to the Broward Sheriff's Office where my client worked. None of that information got to him. They knew it. He didn't. Why weren't the radios patched, radio? Why weren't the radios patched? Why wasn't he told in real time that information? So, you know, it's it's I've look, I've had challenging cases in 30 years. I've taken on you know, cases where the victim's family or next of kin feel very strongly about a position. But, you know, you're dealing with parents who lost their children. These parents came into court yesterday in that courtroom. I was sitting there two rows behind them and uncontrollably tears came down my face because I kept picturing my own children and my own teenage kids. I have three kids and they suffered the most extraordinary loss. So I feel for them and they've been fed this narrative and they want this prosecution to continue. And it's really difficult for me. Well, we know for sure that this trial will last a while. Uh, Mark Eiglers, we'd love you to come back and keep us updated on Legal Faceoff. The website is speaktomark.com. Thanks for joining us on WGN today. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Be well. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. 
McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio, our next guest is criminal defense attorney Allison Treasel, former 2006 L.A. County Woman of the Year. You might recognize her from Access Hollywood. Allison, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. I love being on the show. It's great. Allison, it's our pleasure. We're talking about the slap, of course. Uh, the slap heard around the world, now seen by almost everyone on the planet. Uh, we've all heard all the different accounts now, one being that the LAPD was allegedly ready to come in and take out Will Smith in handcuffs, but that didn't happen. First and foremost, why do you think they did not act that way? Well, I think like all of us, right? I mean, I, as a criminal defense attorney, at first I saw it and I said, well, that's kind of a funny bit. Okay. And then I realized this wasn't a bit at all. This was a crime that had just been committed. And for LAPD, um, their immediate reaction should have been, we just witnessed a crime. There were at least 10 LAPD officers standing there. That doesn't happen very often where they actually witness a crime. This was a misdemeanor in the state of California. Um, but there is no doubt that this was an assault and a battery. It's interesting that they put so that they really put the crux of the case on Chris Rock. And they said, look, we will do what you want us to do. How do you feel about it? Well, to have him make that decision in the moment without really thinking through all the ramifications of what that would be and what it would look like. And he, he really was there was no win win here for him. Right. So if he has Will Smith, who's the a beloved celebrity arrested minutes before he may get the only Oscar he's ever going to get. Um, what does that say about him? If he doesn't do anything, what does it say? So I think it's a very interesting thing thing that, according to reports, so much the determining factor was Chris Rock, where in reality, if you and I reach in a bar um, and I slug you in front of police, I'm in handcuffs. That That's happening. I, I get arrested. Right, because it's a common misconception that the victim has to press charges in order for the perpetrator to be arrested. I mean, that's a factor but it's the state of California versus Will Smith. That's why it's not Chris Rock versus Will Smith. Let's explain why. That, well, yeah, that. and this is a very interesting thing because in California specifically, and I've practiced criminal defense here for 25 years, the you see it most often in a domestic violence case where 80% of the women who initially call the police or a neighbor calls the police says to the police, I don't want to prosecute. I don't want to testify. I don't want to be involved in this case. In every one of those cases, the prosecution continues with or without them. And many prosecutors have said my case to prosecute is actually easier without her testifying. So any any argument here that the state of California specifically um, will not prosecute a case without a complaining witness is just categorically untrue. That, that's not what happens. Um, and I and I do believe and I feel comfortable saying this, um, that the celebrity factor here <clears throat> unfortunately played a role and it shouldn't. 
Um, it should not have played a role in who goes to jail and who doesn't, who gets arrested, who gets charged, who gets prosecuted. Um, like the rest of us, I, I, you know, I have no horse in this race with with Will Smith. I, I you know, thought he was probably, um, you know, one of the most likable celebrities um, in Hollywood of all time. But it doesn't take away from the fact that he he unprovoked. Right. When I say unprovoked, I mean, in the criminal law, the only defense he had was defense of self or defense of, of others. Um, Chris Rock told a joke. He didn't threaten her. He wasn't close enough to do any bodily harm. There is no defense to the criminal act that he committed against Chris Rock. Alison, doesn't the failure to charge Will Smith here send a message to the public that we probably don't want to be sending, which is that you can commit a, a, a widely witnessed crime that everybody on the planet has seen and not only not be charged, but be celebrated as, as the winner of the Oscar. I mean, I think that's yet to be seen what kind of consequences there are going to be now that he's resigned from the Academy. The Academy has said that they're continuing to contemplate um, next steps with him. But as you said, this was a crime being committed in front of many millions of people. Uh, you know, I, it's funny because I heard about the, the resignation from the Academy Award. That means absolutely nothing to me. Um, so he can't, He's not going to get those free samples of movies. Okay. I mean, he's, it didn't take away his livelihood. I mean, he still can act. Um, I believe, and I'm not certain about this, but I believe that he can still be nominated. Um, but he, he, so he's not a voting member of the Academy. Um, that, that is poppycock to me. That's the silliest thing in the world when in reality, um, if, and, and Christina, I said this to Rich, and I'm saying this to you, if you and I got into a fight and it was witnessed by a law enforcement officer. Here, there's a multiple multitude of them. One of us is going to jail. So I think it absolutely sends the wrong message. I mean, I think the message here is if you are famous, the, the rules don't apply to you. Because I can't think of any other reason. Um, again, yes, is Chris Ross a factor? Sure. But it's not the determining factor. It's a crime. And it was witnessed by the police. So when you really think about it, I believe that it is Will Smith's celebrity status. Um, that, and that's not how we should dictate criminal procedure. Last question. Uh, and, and Allison, we know you're a criminal defense lawyer. But civilly, there's certainly some exposure here as well for uh, Will Smith. You know, Chris Rock seemingly is not going to pursue it, although who knows, right? This is the reason why you have right. statute of limitations. He's got plenty of time to file a civil suit. And Jim Carrey was on TV the next day saying, if it was me, I would have announced already a $200 million lawsuit against Chris Rock. I mean, against Will Smith. I mean, to your earlier point, this will affect Will Smith's livelihood, of course, which it should, but it affects Chris Rock's livelihood. You could argue that, according to the shows he's now performing, which are sellouts, you know, he'll make more money, but he's got to live with this video for the rest of his life. Right. It's certainly going to be embarrassing for him, for sure. So I could see Chris Rock coming to his senses at some point and thinking, of course, I'm going to file a lawsuit, not just against Will Smith. And here's where it gets interesting. But the Oscars, the Dolby Theater, security, where the hell was security in allowing this person who's just a few feet come up and slap him? So I do a lot of civil defense work. There's lots of possible defendants in this case. 
See, I'll tell you one thing, and I, I don't think that any of those other players, I don't think that this was reasonably foreseeable. Okay. I think that he, nobody, this had never happened before. Um, Chris Raw, I'm sorry, Will Smith is not known to be a violent person, right? Um, you know, this wasn't a situation where you had Kim Kardashian on stage, and you know, Kanye West coming up to charge her. So I don't, I don't know about the liabilities. Uh, for the others, because it just wasn't foreseeable. And I also, and I, and I may be wrong, Rich, but given the fact that Chris Rock, who has money, is now selling out shows as a result um, and has been unwilling this far to pursue any criminal charges, um, I happen to know Jim Carrey and I like him very, very much. And he's super outspoken, which I love. Um, but I don't think that, I do not think that Chris Rock um, is going to pursue this civilly. I think that he is going to um, channel this through his work and it will become part of a bit. But um, I just don't see him suing. And, I, and I'm shocked um, that the, the prosecutor's office hasn't seriously considered it. And I think that the, the year that they have to make a charging decision, something may change. I'm not sure, but it's possible. Well, I think you're right. I think the foreseeability issue, the lack of any prior history is the determining factor in liability. But I will tell you, the next award show that has the misfortune of inviting Will Smith, they're on notice. That's he right. be, that he is be, He better be Hannibal Lecter out there, right? Yeah. He better be a, on a gurney with true. a mask. Yes, that is true. Again, that's criminal defense attorney Allison Treasel. Find out more about her firm at allisontreasellaw.com, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-I-E-S-S-L-Law.com. Allison, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You all have a great day. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing with the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio, our next guest is Professor Kimberly Whaley of the University of Baltimore. Keep an eye out for her book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. She's also a contributor for BBC World News and to publications like The Atlantic and Politico. Professor, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me back. Professor, several weeks ago, while Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was in the hospital, revelations about his wife, Ginny, surfaced. Uh, there are reports that she exchanged about 30 text messages with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, urging disruption of the November 2020 election results on January 6th. 
So what do we know and what is the latest with this rather scandalous story? What we know is that, as you mentioned, these texts were leaked somehow. They were originally given cooperatively by Mark Meadows to the January 6th committee um, until he sort of abruptly stopped cooperating. And so we know that the January 6th committee has these. And the reason it is such a bombshell revelation is that uh, Justice Thomas did not recuse himself from election-related cases that came before the Supreme Court, including, I think most prominently, a case in which he was the sole dissenting justice uh, in a case involving whether the National Archives should turn over White House records to January 6th committee. He said no. And it, it sounds like uh, reported reportedly, it wasn't just Mark Meadows that she communicated with. So it's possible Justice Thomas uh, was hiding, um, was, was voted the way he did uh, because he didn't want his wife to be exposed. I mean, we don't know for sure they communicated about this, but that's what makes it such a scandal. There's a federal statute that mandates recusal under such circumstances, and he violated a federal law potentially. So it's a big deal. So the argument against that uh, is that Ginny Thomas is a private citizen and she should have the right to speak her mind. Uh, you don't buy that argument. I know. Tell us why. Well, no, nothing about this is saying that she can't speak her mind. Right. The focus is on what her husband, Justice Thomas, does. And there is, as I said, a federal statute that says that if it's, there's even an appearance of impartiality or an interest of a spouse, of a spouse. So this federal law spe specifies if you are a federal judge and your spouse could have an interest in a case, you should recuse yourself from that case. And he didn't do it. So, you know, these justices are on the court for life. They cannot be fired except by impeachment. There's no tickets for speeding through the Constitution and their ethical and legal duties other than impeachment. So, you know, we don't want justices making massive decisions relating to a potential coup on the American presidency around their personal interests. That's just, you know, if that's if he wants to do that, he shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. He can get another job. He can get a great job. Um, but this is really about whether he has satisfied his job description for one of the most powerful positions in America. It has really nothing to do about her free speech. So, Professor, there's been a lot of talk about whether he should resign. There's been talk about impeachment and comparing and contrasting the impeachment of a federal judge to that to impeaching a president. Um, apparently, there have been 15 federal judges over the course of our country's history that have been impeached with the resulting removal of eight. Um, there have been two unsuccessful attempts to remove Supreme Court justices previously. Can you please walk us through what the impeachment process would look like for Justice Thomas? Should that come to pass? Right. So as you mentioned, uh, Samuel Chase was actually impeached on the Supreme Court. There was an effort to impeach uh, William Douglas that failed. But Abe Fortas, a justice, um, did resign in the face of impeachment. So my argument, and I did a piece for Politico on this, is at a minimum, uh, Congress should investigate this because the public scrutiny could could make changes um, ter in terms of political pressure. How would this look? It would be it, it's just like we saw with the presidential impeachments. The big difference is that um, for judges under Article Three, uh, the the Constitution says they shall serve uh, a lot so long as they are you know acting 
uh, I'm paraphrasing, good behavior with good behavior. So arguably that's a lesser standard than high crimes and misdemeanors. The idea again being politicians can be fired at the ballot box. Uh, justices cannot. Um, so it would be, you know, uh, the House of Representatives would have to decide after an investigation to issue articles of impeachment. Um, and that would only require a bare majority. And then it would go to the Senate and there would need to be a supermajority to convict. And with this divided Senate, uh, that would never happen. I don't anticipate that Justice Thomas could conceivably in 2022 be impeached, uh, given that that would give Joe Biden a new seat, uh, a new appointment on the court. But at a minimum, um, I think that there needs to be an investigation as to what Clarence Thomas knew um, about this and what his engagement is in his wife's, I think, pretty well documented far right uh, efforts across many different fora, not just relating to January 6th. That, that is a problem in a federal law, uh, requires that he recuse himself if his wife is uh, potentially compromises his impartiality. Yeah, wouldn't it be interesting, Professor, if uh, Clarence Thomas was off and Biden had a chance to appoint another justice and suddenly it becomes a incredibly, you know, one of the most conservative courts in history by a 6-3 margin to a 5-4 court with Roberts being the swing vote, which isn't clearly as conservative as it is now. So that would be really interesting. I want to end off our discussion with just a turn and talk about your book. Your excellent new book is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. And this is really a guide for non-lawyers to apply critical decision-making that lawyers employ every day to non-law law circumstances, like buying a house, buying a car. And it's funny because I got a 16-year-old daughter. She's you know applying to schools right now, and she doesn't want to be anything close to a lawyer, you know, despite my efforts to uh, to get her into the family business. But I try to tell her that, you know, as a lawyer, you apply those skills to everyday life. And that's exactly, I think, what your book, what your book deals with. Tell us a little more about what you're trying to impart. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for mentioning it. You know, the idea really, I mean, I, I wrote a book on the Constitution, then a book on voting and kind of realized that one of the biggest problems, I think, in our political system and society is this team mentality. I'm right, you're wrong, black and white thinking. I'm on red team, I'm on blue team, canceling other people, shutting them down, not being open-minded. And actually lawyers, as you know, can't do that. Lawyers have to look, turn the coin over. They have to find the potholes. They have to be grounded in law. In fact, or they're gonna get, they're gonna lose in court or be reversed. They have to focus on some value system because all laws are, are grounded in what we call policy rationales, which are really values social values. And lastly, sometimes you have to deliver hard, hard news to clients. You have to compromise. You have to realize you can't win it all. So it's really an effort um, to, to give people a framework of a methodology for, for making uh, you know, decisions that they can have more buy-in for in when it comes to complex uncertainty in life. So, so the idea is to bring a little bit of the elite law school classroom uh, into into every America's kitchen, so to speak, because uh, because I do think there is something about thinking like a lawyer. I've been teaching for 15 years and the way people's brains shift, coming in, wanting answers, looking for what does Professor Whaley want to by the end of the first semester, looking for questions. And I think that's really the difference. Lawyers look for gray areas. They look for questions. And I wonder if we all did that more, um, how some of these real traumas on American society and American politics might shift. Again, that's Professor Kimberly Whaley. Keep an eye out for her book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. Professor, thanks so much for joining us again, and thank you for the insight today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. On 
the Legal Grab Bag here at the Legal Faceoff Podcast. Let's get to our two panelists. We've got Dr. Claire Musselman, Chief Risk Officer at Emory Industrial. Doctor, thank you so much for being here today. Along with Tina Kokinas, the CEO of Optimal Recovery. Tina, thank you for being here as well. Thank you. Rich, let's dive into the jury selection starting today for the panel that'll help decide if Parkland school shooter will get the death penalty or not. Yeah, uh, day two of jury selection. It will go on for months, by all accounts, given the uh, huge group of potential jurors. I think there's a thousand people that they are uh, talking to. Um, You know, some of the questions involved in this case are, number one, is it possible to find impartial jurors in a community that endured one of the most, you know, widely known and, you know, terrible tragedies in certainly American history? Um, Number two is whether they can decide that he uh, should be put to death for this. He has already pled guilty, so that's not a question. But in Florida, 12 people unanimously have to decide that his crime is worthy of the death penalty. Uh, If there's only one holdout, then he is sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. So, Tina, again, lots of high-profile cases that we cover the misperception, I think, out there is that you have to find jurors who haven't heard of the crime. That's impossible in most cases like this. The question is whether you can find 12 people who will put aside their feelings and decide whether he should be put to death or not simply based on the evidence presented. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Tina, uh, Tina, uh, Tina M. <laughs> okay. Multiple um, Tinas today. Yeah, Rich, no, you're absolutely right. And this is a topic that we've con- that we've covered a number of times over the years on, on the podcast. And I'd say at the end of the day, it is possible to find, you know, a jury that will be able to do it. I think it's difficult. Um, I, I also just, I personally have a, a real difficult time with the death penalty just as a backdrop. But that being said, I do think that they will be able to find the right people to make this very tough decision, which I think will be tough for at least some people to make a decision like this. Yeah, for sure. Tina Kay, uh, what will be her as evidence during the case is aggravating and mitigating factors, right? The prosecution's job is to show why uh, this individual is worthy of the death penalty because of the heinousness of this crime, because of, you know, the deliberation involved, while the defense has the burden of showing why there are mitigating factors. For example, he was bullied in his life, allegedly, that he grew up without a father, that he had no real prior criminal history. If you were on this jury, would you be able to look at those factors? Or do you think that most people's minds are made up when you plead guilty to killing 17 people in a high school? I think if you look at it, for me, if I was looking at it just at face value, I would say this is a death penalty case that I could do that. But when you're talking about all the other factors involved, um, you know, hearing about his life, his mental health situation, um, did anyone try to get help for him? I, I don't know a lot of the specifics of the case, but I feel like I could definitely be fair in hearing all the information and taking in all the facts. Claire, one of the goals of the death penalty or any sentence is to deter other people from doing the same thing, right? You know, uh, there's different goals of of the penal system. 
one of them is, again, to act as a deterrence to future school shooters. Well, the yep. fact is most school shooters kill themselves and die after the event. So the deterrent factor of putting this person to death is probably minimal. Do you think that um, that's still something that should weigh on the decision as to whether or not to put him to death? No. So I still go back to, so if you're a parent, I mean, you're going to have a hard time with this jury selection in general. I am a parent. And while I commend Tina for being able to be, uh, I guess, kind of unbiased and looking at this from a death penalty, from a yay or nay standpoint, uh, I think it goes down to more along the lines of like, what is your viewpoint on it to begin with? Even though we're going to say that we're going to look at all the facts of the case, uh, as a parent, I would have a very hard time uh, kind of looking at it from that standpoint. And if you're going to be pulling from this jury pool of a thousand people, I mean, how many of them are parents as well as have some type of tie to someone that's more of like in that influential mentor capacity that would have influenced kids like this. So when we look at it from a, a deterrent standpoint, um, they've, I, I thought that school shootings, and I could be wrong on this, that it's always been for the hype. Also, there's that component that has been discussed previously. Um, so I think Maybe it is setting a precedent of what happens if you don't. Yeah, I think it's an excellent perspective. I mean, none of us could really say how we would feel or, or really, you know, how you would come down as to yay or nay on the death penalty for this, you know, shooter uh, if you're the victim's family. And, and we have on our next podcast, we'll be having as a guest the widow of one of the three adults who were killed in 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 the Parkland school shooting. And, you know, certainly interested in hearing her perspective. But I think you're right. It's who are we to say you know, yes or no, this person should be put to death when we didn't lose anyone in this, you know, terrible tragedy. And I, I was going to say, Rich, I think that hearing the victim's impact statements would impact me a great deal being on the jury. And um, obviously at that point, you know, you've heard all the information, but I still feel like I would be able to be open to, you know, hearing all the facts. Yeah, I mean, you'd be a good juror. That's what you want as a juror. But, you know, what struck me in, in watching him, the shooter's uh, statement when he pled guilty was, you know, he was talking about how uh, he can't sleep anymore and how sorry he was and how people shouldn't smoke marijuana. It was a really bizarre. And he also said, uh, I can't even watch TV anymore. Oh, really? I feel bad. You know, you know who can't watch TV anymore also or who can't do anything is the 17 people you killed. So... And not a lot of sympathy for me on that, uh, but we'll keep moving, uh, Joe. Yeah, so uh, 50 Cent has thrown in his two cents on Will Smith's slap to Chris Rock. Tina M., take it away. Yeah, so the slap scene around the world has been getting a lot of airplay. And earlier in the show, we spoke about Will Smith's potential civil and criminal liability for the slap. Um, but legal scholars such as us are not the only ones who are talking about the slap and offering their point of view on whether Chris Rock should sue and how much the case could be worth. Um, Fiddy also spoke and says that- Wait, you just shifted shifted from 50. Let's just note for the record. (laughs) But Joe said the whitest version ever of the name, the most Caucasian pronunciation, and then Tina said Fiddy. So I'm good good with Fiddy. For the record, we are talking about the same person. So (laughs) for those of you listeners who didn't catch that we're talking about the same person. So Fiddy has spoken, um, saying that in his opinion, uh, a Chris Rock lawsuit is looming and he has nothing but great things to say about Chris Rock for playing it cool. 
Um, Rock was pretty quiet about the whole thing until he first appeared publicly last week to do his stand-up act on Wednesday when he told the crowd that he was still processing what happened and that at some point he would speak publicly about it. Apparently, he was great in his show and it was business as usual for him. So Fiddy has become more vocal as time has gone on. He's posted videos and memes of the incident. And in his humble legal opinion, the case is worth $100 million. Other celebrities have thrown their hats into the fray and opining on what they think the case is worth. As we mentioned earlier, Jim Carrey mentions that he thinks the case is worth $200 million. His rationale is that Chris, Lo- Chris Rock has to deal with the situation of a video going viral, which will live on forever and will likely cause him at least some embarrassment and trauma. So um, it seems like there's a lot of debate, Rich, about whether or not Chris Rock's going to sue. I'm pretty disinclined to think that he will. Um, Would love to hear what other folks on the panel think. Well, listen, I am uh, advocate number one of the idea that most of these lawsuits are frivolous, especially when brought by, you know, wealthy actors um, for exorbitant amounts of money. And we'll cover that here in a second on our grab bag. But in this case, I don't know that 200 million is out of the question. And here's why you're right. And Fiddy is right. Words that have never been said on legal podcasts before. Fiddy is right. I stand with Fiddy. <laughs> uh, you know, how do you put a value And you know, you're, you're an expertise in brand protection. We'll be talking about that in a moment. How do you put a value on the negative connotations to a well-known celebrity who's really in the middle of his career, you know, maybe on towards the back end, but he's got 20 years left of being uh, in show business how do you put a value on the negative impact of being a victim of a crime and not fighting back? Right. I mean, certainly you can look at him as many have as, oh, he took the high road and he he came out with class. On the other hand, many people will look at him as a whip, maybe, or someone who didn't defend themselves as a victim of a crime. Two hundred million to me is a drop in the bucket. Right. When you consider how much money he makes, how much money he could, I think, um, show a jury he is inclined to lose in his career. So. I say go for it. I mean, I, I think, of course, Will Smith is you know guilty of an incredible crime here and should pay for it way beyond uh, resigning from the Academy. As Allison said earlier, like, oh, boo-hoo, you won't get free like, Oscar screeners anymore. That's quite a penalty. So, yeah, I, I'll take the case. If, uh, if Chris Rock is listening, we know he listens to our podcast. Call me up. It'll be my first plaintiff's case in history. Claire, what do you think? But, but Will Smith gave such a heartfelt approach. Right. Right. Is there any mitigation? What I I think this whole thing is. I I'm with Chris Rock on taking the high road on it. Uh, I would absolutely, if nothing else, it's something fun for people to talk about for a while. I, the when we looked at the Fitty article uh, to discuss for today, that's one of my favorite meme videos where they've done the minute black clap clap for the slap. It's funny. So if nothing else, it'll at least stir some more laughter. I'm sure throughout the community. Tina, are you like most of us uh, still sort of dealing with our PTSD? Tina Kay from uh, from this slap. <laughs> um, maybe a little bit. It's just with so many things going on in the world and Hollywood. You know, sometimes it just feels like they think they can get away with anything. So, um, yeah, I agree with you that for Chris Rock. Um, you know, his, his future, his future earnings, his reputation, um, you know, it's what everybody's talking about. So, 
you know, how is that going to affect him in the future? I don't know. So I but think 200 million. Yeah. You also look at like Will Smith got up and walked up on stage. Like, it's not like they were standing together presenting. He makes a comment, you turn and slap, whatever. I mean, gets up from his table, walks up on stage. And this was like a pretty big scene. This is a very yeah. intentional scene to call. After he laughed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I can't fit. What, what emotion are we going with today? Because yeah. there was a very candid, tearful apology. So, I mean, such depth, such depth in acting these days. <laughs> Tina M, thank you for roughing up my innocent description of the previous <laughs> that we just had. Anytime, Joe. We need, we need a little edge on the Legal Face-Off podcast, so I'm happy you're here to provide it. Um, <laughs> next segment, uh, Supreme Court will hear the photographer's copyright dispute over Andy Warhol's Prince portraits. Yeah, so last week, the Supreme Court agreed to consider whether Andy Warhol's portraits of singer Prince constitute copyright infringement of Lynn Goldsmith. Um, her, her, she's the photographer of Prince, and it was her photos of the singer upon which the Andy Warhol um, portraits were based. So the debate here is whether the Warhol portraits constituted fair use and therefore were legal under the copyright law because they were transformative of the original copyrighted photos or whether they constitute copyright infringement. So the Andy Warhol Foundation had filed for cert in its, in its declaratory judgment suit against Goldsmith. So in other words, Andy Warhol Foundation tried to preempt the lawsuit by Goldsmith. The foundation claims that the Prince series should be permissible because that series of paintings transformed Goldsmith's photograph into essentially a commentary on celebrity and consumerism rather than being a derivative work, which under the copyright law would have uh, required Goldsmith's permission first. So the story actually begins many years ago when Goldsmith had licensed one of her photographs in 1981 to Vanity Fair for $400. Um, allowing it to be used as an artist reference for an illustration. She said there was no other usage that was permitted, and she didn't know that Vanity Fair had actually hired Warhol for the illustration. Um, there was a pretty elaborate process that Warhol went through, um, including using the photo in a silkscreen process and reproducing the photo and then painting over that with an impression. So um, Goldsmith contends that this is copyright infringement. Um, last August, the Second Circuit agreed with her and reversed the lower court's finding from back in 2019 that had held that it was a fair use. Um, and the foundation claimed in its filing for cert that the Second Circuit's decision squarely contravenes um, Supreme Court precedent which holds that work is transformative and therefore a fair use if it has a different meaning or message from what the original work is. So for us um, IP geeks like me, this is a pretty big case um, that we've been watching for quite some time as it made its way through the Second Circuit. Um, and it's interesting because we know all the players. So it'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court does with us. Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court doesn't take up these cases that often. So the fact that they're taking this one is certainly... Uh uh, relevant. And, you know, it just underlines the point that we'll be making in our last story involving the lawsuits against Dua Lipa is like more than ever, uh, 
IP is going to be subject of people saying that you stole from them. I mean, given the amount of money being transacted, given, you know, um, NFTs and given the new forms of media, it just means that the uh, amount of money being transacted for all sorts of IP is going to result in lawsuits. We know this, right? So, you know, advice that you've given before is like, get permission. If not, have a really good and deep budget for legal because you're going to get sued. Uh, Tina, you know, I know Tina K. I know, you know, uh, you probably uh, haven't dug deep into the legal ramifications of this, but you know, we're all fans of Andy Warhol and, and Prince. And uh, should there be certain types of celebrities that are out there that are just in the public domain, and therefore should expect that their works will be, let's say. Not copied, but be you know honored, maybe by someone else by by using it. What are your thoughts? I you know I'm possibly I think it's really hard, especially with the internet and social media and songs being played. It's where do you draw the line? Where would that line be drawn? Um, I don't know if there's any uh, limitation, but I I'm curious why why did it take so many years? For the lawsuit, do we, you know that, or it was quite yeah, a while, right? Yeah, I mean, these obviously these cases take you know a long time to work their way through the courts and the amount of issues involved, and uh, to the Supreme Court, it's not unusual for sure for these cases to take years and years. Yeah, I think it's a fine line. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Um, they do put themselves out there, and you know, so. Yeah, for sure. A hard one. So I got to take this from like a different approach. So coming from like the academia realm, since I am a professor and we do with a lot of uh, what I would call it, um, I don't know if I want to call it copyright infringement, but a lot of plagiarism. And so there are some very, like, it's a very thin line where we like run people through every gamut and every algorithm possible to make sure that it is your own work. And so I think if we apply that into this, I know it's not celebrityism or whatnot, but it's a really hard line in the academic world. So I'm not surprised that we're seeing it in this capacity. I do, I'm kind of interested in why it took so long as well. But at some point we have seen a lot of replications and we see people reinventing things that have already been around. And so at what point is that line drawn? So it'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court decides. Well, speaking of drawing lines, a football <laughs> player is in charge. Oh, as wow. a hey, the, that goes in the Joe Segway All Star reel. <laughs> and she 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 set me up. It was a softball toss. So is it? <laughs> uh, a uh, avid pickleballer has been charged as a felon for re-striping a public ball court with a sharpie. Tina M. Yeah, so if Seinfeld were still on the air, I think that this storyline could very easily have been picked up by the writers and they would have run down the field with this one. So this is a story of a man named Arslan Gunny from Denver, who is apparently a pickleball aficionado. Um, he actually loves the game so much that the people who he plays with and who know him for his pickleball tendencies call him the mayor of pickleball. For those of you listeners who don't know, pickleball is a combination of tennis, racquetball, and ping pong. So one day, Gunny was out playing pickleball in the pickleball court and noticed that the lines that were drawn on the basketball court that they were using as a pickleball court in Denver's uh, Central Park Rec Center 
the lines for the pickleball court had grown so faded, they were really difficult to see. And so Gunny took it upon himself, being the good Samaritan that he is for all pickleballers, to draw in the new lines with a Sharpie. What he didn't know was that this, what he thought was a good Samaritan act for the pickleball community, would actually um, be considered a felony. And in fact, he ended up being arrested three days later and now faces felony criminal mischief charges with the city claiming $10,000 in damages. So the pickleball community has gotten behind him and they've mentioned that he's just a great mentor, a great guy, has taught people um, through tireless efforts how to, how to succeed in playing pickleball. And they've actually submitted dozens of letters in support. Um, he's actually formally apologized by writing a letter to the Denver Parks and Recreation Center. And he's actually lawyered up with a fellow pickleball player. So what's really unfortunate for Gunny is that the Denver officials are standing by the charges and saying that at the end of the day, it's their job to protect city assets and public property. And he defaced and damaged public property by taking a Sharpie to the basketball court. And um, there was damage done to the court by using the Sharpie. And now no one can play pickleball. And pickleball play has been temporarily suspended to assess the damage, Rich. I think the fact I think the fact that he's called the mayor of pickleball is enough to throw throw his ass, throw his ass in jail for a little while. That that bothers me. Uh, it's like you know, Mayor McCheese or something. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it doesn't fit the crime, but make an example out of him. I say, I think Fifty Cent probably agrees with me. You know, you shouldn't be defacing uh, parks and public uh, public spaces. So Claire, throw the book at the mayor. So what if he would have just, so would he not have been in trouble if he would have just used some tape? So are we really upset that the guy drew like Sharpie, man. Sharpies are, Sharpies are permanent. It says they're permanent so, right on there. I got to so be cool. honest, man. If, if Denver cops have this much time to oh, go, that's what, I was thinking. what is going on? Oh my goodness. I love the fact that they, uh, they arrested him after identifying him on the gym surveillance footage, like, you know, the whole bunch of cops are huddled around the surveillance. Like, let's see, wait, wait. All right, go get him. He, he, he used the Sharpie swarm, swarm, swarm. If the LAPD doesn't go after Will Smith when right. you know he slugs him on stage in front of millions of people. Go if figure. Only, if only Gunny was at the Oscars, then they would have taken his ass down. Yeah, this is where I think I'm going to absolutely say these are first world problems. That's yeah, right. I agree. Problems. I agree. Well, anyone I play pickleball? I want to. I want to try pickleball actually, but I have I not played it yet. But that cross between all three. I mean, I, I grew up playing tennis, so I'm, I'm assuming this will ruin my tennis game. Yeah. I, I'm with you, Tina. The uh, Seinfeld parallel is is pretty spot on. I could see outrage over at Marty and Moira Seinfeld's uh, community. <laughs> well, it feels like Uncle Leo would be a uh, pickleball player. Right. Or, or something like Jerry. Jerry <laughs> would run, oh, I was just helping everyone out. I don't oh, know. For sure. I, I think Newman would be like an amazingly, surprisingly great pickleball player. And he'd be in the middle of this whole story somehow. <laughs> Nothing more. His headband on. Yes. <laughs> and of course, you would end the episode with no soup for you. It isn't, right, yeah. isn't <laughs> nothing, nothing more timely than 25 year old TV references on legal face off. Well, no, but isn't, isn't that a line? Newman plays tennis. He's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, 
All right, uh, on to the next segment. Brandy, the musician, and no relation, I know you were wondering, uh, is being sued by a former housekeeper alleging age discrimination. Rich? Yeah, uh, Brandy is 43, and the allegation is that the uh, the housekeeper, Mary, Maria Elizabeth Castaneda, who is, what, in her 60s, was fired by Brandy because she was too old. And speaking of first-world problems, I mean, this woman is alleging that uh, she was paid $125 a day and she worked for Brandy since 2002. Now she's claiming that Brandy violated California state labor laws, failure to pay minimum wage, give her rest and meal and, you know, didn't pay taxes and so forth. But she's alleging $250,000 worth of damages. I mean, my math isn't great, but it didn't quite seem to add up at $125 a day. Now, it should be noted Tina M., that uh, it's not the first time Brandy's been sued for allegedly failing to pay people that she owes money. There was a couple other lawsuits that we looked into where she allegedly didn't uh, turn in a ring she was supposed to wear to the American Music Awards, or she wore it, she was supposed to turn it back in after the AMAs, and she was sued by uh, her stylist, or her and her stylist were sued by the designer. So, you know, uh, speaking of older references, Brandy hasn't really had a, uh, a hit record in, in very long, but I liked, uh, what was it? The Boy is Mine, right? Who was that with? That was with yeah, was uh, her, wasn't it? Oh, no, that was, a, that was her and another singer. It'll come to me while Tina's telling us about her feelings on Brandy. Oh, Monica. It was Monica. Monica that's right. Monica. Monica. Thanks, Yvonne, for that, uh, for that prompt. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, maybe Brandy's falling on hard times. I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to return things that you borrow and you got to pay people that are rendering services and selling you things. So, Brandy, if you're not paying your people, you know, that, that's what the law is for, to give consequences to such, you know, action or inaction. But Tina, talking about, you know, Tina Kay, uh, she was just cast in a movie called Best Christmas Ever uh, on Netflix with uh, the following other icons of the 90s, like our friend Seinfeld, uh, Heather Graham, Jason Biggs, and someone named Matt Sedano. So maybe she has some money that she could repay this, uh, this housekeeper. I guess I need to know the rest of the details. Was the housekeeper, when she walked in the room, sleeping in a chair or... You know, what else was going on? It just seems odd to me that after 20 years, all of a sudden you just stop paying somebody. And, you know, she had 20 years not to work there if she wasn't getting breaks or all these other things or to bring it to someone's attention. So I'm not sure. I, I just need to hear all the facts. Yeah, I mean, Brandy says that we disagree. We'll have further comments after we speak with our lawyers. Her rep said, um, I know that she lives in Calabasas and Calabasas has uh, a lot of big houses. So perhaps there were performance issues. Who knows? But we'll let the jury work that one out. Let's get to one of the hardest hitting questions since the 80s. Where's the beef? Uh, there's now a lawsuit alleging Burger King sandwich sizes rich in ads are misleading to customers. Yeah, class action suit brought by an attorney who alleges that uh, Burger King has inflated the size of its burgers in images starting back in, in 2017. And the lawsuit alleges that uh, they should be more accurately representing to the public 
the size of their burgers. This is not the first lawsuit like this we've covered. And, and these days, more than ever, you know, it's been very uh, widely reported that consumers are getting far less product. There's a, a term for it. I think it's called uh, undersizing or something. Uh, consumers are getting a lot less product for their money than ever in an effort in the wake of what we've seen recently to drive up profits, right? What's one way to uh, make up profits is provide products for more money at less uh, volume. So that's what this lawsuit alleges. And they're actually trying to make a class action out of it, alleging that uh, this has affected, you know, millions of people. And while we laugh at it, there's actually, you know, these, these lawsuits uh, get uh, happen all the time. And they can be quite lucrative for the classes. Uh, there's other similar lawsuits that resulted in 30 or $40 million verdicts. Um, you know, you do wonder what the damages are to an individual for getting a Whopper. That might be a little smaller, but when, if it is certified as a class, uh, there's certainly some liability for, for Burger King here. Tina, Tina M., um, are you upset by the uh, amount of uh, food you're getting these days when you go purchase your products? And would you file a lawsuit as a result? Well, you know, I think that's a great question, Rich. I mean, being a lawyer doesn't necessarily make me litigious. I just, I try to be very cautious when I go purchase things. And I do think that especially with COVID the last couple of years, that the sizing of products, you may end up paying the same amount for what you thought you were getting. But when you look very closely, you're getting sometimes less. And it's because it's become more expensive for these companies that are food companies and restaurants to bring to you what they could pr could previously bring to you in terms of quantity. It's just more, more expensive. So I wouldn't necessarily react with a lawsuit. I just react by pivoting to another brand or, you know, another product um, or just suck it up and know that it's just more expensive to buy things now. Yeah. Claire, uh, Tina, we've seen lawsuits involving people who allege that you know, a foot long is only, you know, not quite 12 inches. And but maybe it's for the best. Maybe maybe the world doesn't need a larger burger. Right. In the spirit of eating better, maybe these companies are doing us a favor. No, I, I'll support that. I will absolutely support that. I think there's also something with like the marketing and advertising. So when we look like if you walk into a Starbucks, we know that a lot of the cases are designed, but with like plastic products. So you aren't going to get what it looks like. And I would say, you know, if you want to take it into a different context, let's look at Instagram. You go on Instagram and people filter everything. So isn't this, couldn't this be considered yet another just different type of filter? Ah, uh, right. Actually underneath. Tina, what do you think? Burger King or whatever the restaurant is really has to watch out because you'll lose a lot of your clientele. You know, there's a, there's a fish sandwich that I like to get and I won't say the restaurant, but it used to be like a big square. <laughs> it's like this with a quarter of a piece of cheese on it. And I just haven't had one in a few years. Um, it's but, it's called, but listen, it's called, ad, it's called advertising. Like, Look at any fast food commercial. It makes it look like the most juicy, you know, delicious tasting thing. When you open the wrapper, it's like, wait a second. I want that thing, not what's in front of me. It's advertising. There's got to be something. the line cross where it's a lie? Right. Or well, I, there, there's I a... Tina again on the, then I pivot. I mean, your money is where you have the most buying power on this. Instead of suing, I'd rather just not spend money there, period. 
there's an Instagram video where they show how they make the food look so appetizing. And I've seen it where they construct a Whopper or any kind of burger and they literally cut out a little piece of cardboard and put it like in between the burger patties and before the bun. So it looks like it's a lot fuller and more stacked. They put motor oil on pancakes instead of syrup because it actually looks a lot more appetizing. Well, that's deceptive. Right, right. So, I mean, there, there you go. Uh, I feel like when we do these musical challenge argument topics, it's really just a cross advertisement, a cross promotion for Rich's other podcast of Trial by Vinyl. So, Rich, you can just go ahead and talk about uh, the Dua Lipa song. That's I mean, let's just go to the jury. Let's play it. Dua Lipa, Dua Lipa has been sued now by two different artists. Hang on. Two different artists alleging that she copied their songs. And uh, the jury is going to hear... Uh, videos like this, so let's play it and let's all vote. Go ahead. Eva. Here's Live Your Life. This is Dua Lipa. You notice? I mean, I vote guilty. I vote guilty. I, I'm in favor of the. <laughs> I'm in favor of the plaintiffs. I'll just tell you right off the bat now. Uh, it's way more complicated. And these trials and these cases have become so prevalent. Really, the dividing line, no pun intended, was the Blurred Lines uh, lawsuit from about five years ago where Ro- uh, Robin Thicke and Pharrell were found guilty and they paid $5 million to uh, Marvin Gaye's estate. And the reason why that was such a decisive case was because that wasn't even alleged that they copied the song. It was they copied the vibe of it, right? Experts came in and said, for the first time, really, that this is not exactly chord for chord the same, but more of a vibe. That song, the Marvin Gaye song, had, you know, sort of people making uh, sounding like they were at a party initially. So did Blurred Lines. So that was really a groundbreaking case. And in the wake of that, we're seeing cases every single day where prominent artists are being sued by uh, others. But to me, and again, like, you know, you will have forensic people come in, experts come in and really analyze the chords. But at the end of the day, a jury's, going to listen with their ears. And to me, from that quick hit we just heard, they sound incredibly similar. What's the verdict here, Tina? Well, I, I'd say, you know, just because I'm an IP lawyer, there's mitigating factors, right? There's a context here. So it's listening to the whole thing. It's also, as you mentioned, sort of the vibe, you know, what other songs were out there when the original song by the original artist back in the 70s what were what were the other songs what was the musical context in which that original work was created because that may not be a completely original work and so there's a lot of different layers to the analysis i agree with you there's some strong similarities there but that in and of itself will not win a copyright infringement case claire uh you know, all art is derivative in some way or the other. And that's especially true when you are talking about music. You know, I heard one expert put it that there's only so many notes, right? There's only so many ways to play the piano. And at some point it's going to sound similar, but there's a difference between that. And in some of these cases, uh, they're actually, the allegation is they're using actual uh, phrases and words from the one song and the other song. So that becomes pretty compelling evidence, I think, to a, a layperson on the jury. Yeah. So I, when the song came out, I remember thinking, oh, I know this song. It's, it sounds very familiar. Could never put my finger on it until we played it today. And I was like, oh yeah, 
Okay. But absolutely knew I'd heard the song before. So from complete layman's terms and not going into any of the copyright stuff, I definitely thought I'd heard that song before. Yeah. I'm going to go with guilty on this one. Well, and you know, to our earlier point, I mean, I think I do like her version better though. Yeah. I mean, these days that's gotta be baked into, you know, the whole uh, producing of a song is that you're going to be sued. And this is, I think this has the record for the most successful song of, of 2021 levitating. And, uh, you know, I think, I think you got to just assume that you're going to be sued and it's a question of how much do you want to fight it? So then is there, if, if you went on the front end, we're like, yep, I'm going to take these notes. Can you just pay royalty? Yeah. Off that? yeah sure. You can ask for permission. Yeah. Yeah. You absolutely can ask for permission. And that's why, and that's how you, short circuit all of this is if you get permission from the front end, but people don't want to share royalties unless they absolutely have to. And they roll the dice and think they won't get caught or people won't want to spend the money to go after them. Until you become like the biggest song. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Then people are coming out of the woodwork for sure. Joe, are you a, uh, I know you're a big Dua Lipa fan. What's your, uh, should we go around the horn and ask people their favorite Dua Lipa song? That's a little, that's a little rough. I, I don't know if I can name any other one. I mean, I'm sure I've heard other songs, uh, but I can't like declare or uh, connect the dots when it's a Dua Lipa song. I do like that song that we played. And I would also go with Guilty because that part of the song is probably the best part of the song. Um, so, yeah, I'd go Guilty there. All right. Around the Horn. We got to do our, our final. Our, we'll end up with our Around the Horn segment, Joe, that you love so much. We just the Grammys just happened. Uh, let's go with. Uh, what artist at the Grammys is your favorite? It's a little bit tough because, you know, old people like me are not as up to speed. But give us one artist that won at the recent Grammys the other night or performed that, you know, you're a fan of. Joe, we'll put you on the spot and ask you first. Can't yeah, be dual. There's a guess. It can't be dual leap. Yeah, uh, I, I did not watch the Grammys. Uh, I'm going to you're the youngest person on the panel. You must know. Uh, <laughs> come on. I'm, I'm going to see Weezer in a couple of weeks, so that they're my favorite. Weezer was at the 98 Grammys. <laughs> I'll steal this one. I'm going to go with Billie Eilish. Very ah, happy. Billie Eilish fan. See her evolve over the years. Um, I've been listening to her secretly since 2013. So I think it's been fun to watch her evolve. And she has talked about that publicly, not only from her physical appearance, but also growing up in the musical genre and how she has tried to really placate uh, being who you are and the growth and development that occurs in growing up in life, lessons learned, et cetera. And so I was very happy to see her. Just, yeah. And in, in one week, she won the Oscar too. Oscar than the Grammy. She's halfway to the EGOTs. Yep. Right. Uh, Tina K. anyone at the recent Grammys that uh, you were a fan of? I did not watch it either, but I'm a fan of Halsey. Mm. I don't know if she performed or not. Yeah, she's great. Awesome. Olivia Rodrigo. Yeah, Olivia Rodrigo won, won three and then broke one of the awards that night. Uh, Tina M., you're a bit of an old school music fan like myself, but anyone stand out for you at the recent Grammys? Well, I didn't watch the Grammys either. Um, and I know that they weren't there for understandable reasons, but Foo Fighters won a couple Grammys. Um, very, very sad news about Taylor Hawkins. So... I'm I'm sure that's why they were not there. It was a week after he had passed away. Yeah, they did a pretty nice tribute to him. Um, incredible drummer. I like, uh, I'm going to cheat a little because he did perform at the Grammys, but he's not exactly current. But Lenny Kravitz, my man Lenny Kravitz came on and 
did a blazing performance of uh, are you going to go my way? And, you know, I think he, uh, he held up and his daughter is a superstar now as the, the cat woman. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the legal grab bag. Big thanks to Claire and Tina and all our other guests earlier today on the legal face off podcast, Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini, also our producers of Emily Flores, Yvonne Barbosa, and Ben Anderson. I'm Joe Brand. We'll see you in a couple of weeks on the Legal Faceoff Podcast. Thanks for listening. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.